0: I think if we are honest with ourselves, every one of us would say that there is a Goliath in each of our lives. And these Goliaths are there to harass us, they're there to mock us, they're there to discourage us, they're there to keep us from accomplishing and doing great things for God, which is the purpose of God in our lives. You remember that Goliath kept on mocking the people of God. Until a shepherd boy who believed that his God is greater than all of the giants in this world, that his God is greater than all the Goliaths in our lives. Beloved, listen, wherever your Goliath may be, whether it's an illness that is plaguing you or it is a weakness that's constantly discouraging you, whether it is some hindrances that are frustrating you in life, uh, whether it's a past that's holding you back in chains, or or whether it's a person who is constantly harassing you, and there seemed to be no end to it. And the Bible said that day after day, Goliath, the Philistine giant, would come and mock and harass and challenge the people of God. And no one could stand up to him until David the son of Jesse, shows up on the scene, who actually was there bringing food to his older brothers who were part of the army. Here's a fact. The giant that's in your life, and you know it, and the giant that is in my life, are very different, and vice versa. But unless we learn how to slay these giants, whatever they may be, Satan is going to use them He's going to use them to discourage us. He's going to use them to defeat us. Whether these giants are the giants of fear, anxiety, and worry, and discouragement, and and despondency, whether these giants are the giants of addiction, or or restlessness, or envy, or bitterness, or anger, whatever they may be. And make no mistake about it, Satan is behind them all. (laughs) But they have one purpose in mind, that is to render the children of the living God to be ineffective and not to be the army of the living God. The question is, how do we defeat these giants, whatever they may be? story told about the Sunday school teachers, nine-year-old kids, and she was trying to teach about Goliath and David, which is a story, of course, familiar to everybody, even non-Christians. And so she brought a life-size giant into the classroom, and she Plonked it right there in the front of the kids, and she said, Now, kids, what do you do when you're facing this type of giant? One kid said, I'll call 911. <laughs> well, that's one way of dealing with it. As I said, the story of David is so you known you, you hear people in the media always referring to David and Goliath, and and the so familiarity with it tend to really take away from the absolute significance of of it in the Christian life, in the spiritual walk, when that nine-foot-ten-inch Philistine giant was mocking and harassing and belittling the people of God, when that nine-foot-ten-inches Philistine rendered the entire army of Israel to be ineffective until David showed up and who took the giant on. You see, in the Bible, this giant is a type of Satan. This is a type of the battle between Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear me right on this one. Whatever your Goliath may be, whatever Goliath you have in your life, he is Satan's champion, and he is Satan's emissary to harass us and to defeat us. But David represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's champion. And he defeated Goliath and killed him and became victorious. Why? Because David was the foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, who knocked Satan's teeth when he died on that cross. David put a stone in that sling, and when that stone landed in the forehead of Goliath, he yelled out, timber! (laughs) You see, when David put that stone in that sling, he was foreshadowing the solid rock upon whom the church is built. Jesus is the one who on the cross defeated Satan. He actually crushed his head, just as the Bible prophesied. Jesus is the one who defeated Satan and he defeats every giant that harasses every one of his children? The problem is there's so many of God's children don't know that. They don't know that when Jesus died on that cross, he gained the victory for every one of his children. Jesus is the one who destroyed the power of sin and death. Jesus is the one who knocked Satan's teeth just as he promised in Genesis. Right after that victory. Right after David's victory over that giant, he sat down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote Psalm 8. After the great victory, David sat under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and penned this song of victory. And in that song of victory, he does basically two things, easy to remember, hard to forget, two things and two things only. He begins And notice the order here, because that's very important. The order is important. He begins by the surpassing majesty of God. Can you say that with me? The surpassing majesty of God. And when you have taken account of the surpassing majesty of God, comes the second one, and that is, you're going to have a sober measurement of man. Man, at that point, becomes in his rightful place, in her rightful place. What David is saying here is this listen carefully that you will never, and I will never, that we will never understand human beings. We will never understand the complexity of humanity. We'll never understand the complexity of relationships unless we see them as God sees them. That you and I will never understand that the human beings or humanity, unless we see them as God's own handiwork, creation. We will never understand human beings unless we recognize that they have responsibility to their Creator. (laughs) That's why we're in trouble we're in today. The reason we have turmoil in society, all of communities and churches and, and family relationships, when they fail to have this perception when they fail to have this perspective. And so you begin with the surpassing majesty of God. Every problem that any of us will face, whatever it may be, whether it be in workplace or home, whatever, church or community, every problem we face today, whether it's political or social or economical or relational in terms of relationship, they're all getting worse. Did you know that? But do you know why? Because we are trying to understand man and the problems that we're facing without understanding God and His purpose for life. Many a preacher today are focusing on the problems or how to solve the problems, and how to motivate you to solve the (laughs) problems— They're giving you principles and methods and formulas to solve your problems, but that's the core of the problem. (laughs) They leave God out, the only one who can solve our problems. Now, beloved, we can only have sober measurement of humanity and of human beings, and of the human problems, and all the relationship problems that we have. We can only have that sober judgment only when we have understanding of the surpassing majesty of God. If you start with God's surpassing majesty, He will give you the proper view. He will give you the answers, and you'll be able to have a sober measurement. Some of you know that I've spent a few years studying anthropology. Well, the word anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means uh, man, basically the study of man. And that is why I tell people I spent several years in a dark room looking for a black cat that wasn't there. That's what you do. You go around and around and around, and basically we accomplish nothing. But if you begin by focusing on people and people's problems, and you don't start with the Creator God, things are going to get muddier and muddier and muddier. Many a Christian today begin with studying the problems and struggling to find solutions to the problems, whether it be in relationships, and whether it be in ministry, or whether it be in dealing with one another. And that is why David began with God. And that's why you and I must begin with God. David understood that when you are under attack, don't panic. You don't faint. You don't tranquilize yourself. You don't cut and run. You don't bury your head in the sand. You don't live in despair. You don't surrender to your fears. You don't surrender to defeat. David said, from first-hand experience, it's a testimony, you see, the testimony coming here to play, his testimony. When you're in trouble, what you need to do is do some name-calling. No, not name-calling of your enemy. (laughs) I know that's a temptation. I know that's a temptation. But call on the name of the God of heaven. Verse 1, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's where you start. This is where you begin. This is where you need to go. Perhaps some of you today are discouraged, and just living in a life of discouragement. I understand that. Some of you are defeated right now in this life, in, in, in your circumstances, and what you're facing. You're facing defeat. Some of you right now right down depressed. I understand that. Call upon the name of the Lord, and don't stop calling until He hears you and answer you from heaven. Amen. Amen. Beloved, there is power in the name of the Lord. There is strength in the name of the Lord. There is victory in that name. There is mercy, and there is grace in that name. And David is really saying a lot more than this. He's saying that when you look at creation and you see all of its majesty, and you see its magnificence, you are only seeing a very, very, very pale approximation of the true majesty of God. Right. If you ever catch a glimpse of God's glory and majesty, you would be praising Him every waking moment. According to Psalm 8, verse 2, every infant babe praising God. Mom and dad, even when that babe cried in the middle of the night. You need to rejoice, because he's praising God. (laughs) I know you don't think so when you wake up in the middle of the night, but if you think about it this way, it'll it'll go a lot easier. (laughs) The Lord Jesus Christ himself quoted this verse. He quoted it to these self-righteous Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, from the lips of children, he ordained praise. David came into the battlefield. And he said to Goliath, who was mocking, he is actually mocking God by mocking his people. You remember when Paul, on the road to Damascus, and he has an encounter with the risen Christ, he did not say to him, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? Do you know what he said to him? Why are you persecuting me? You see, Goliath was mocking the God of Israel. And David said, who is this Philistine who's mocking my God? Now his older brothers were trying to shut him down and shut him up. <laughs> it's always the case, isn't it? with those who have the spirit of unbelief, those who have a critical spirit, in our culture we probably don't criticize, we just ignore. Poor saps. <laughs> They're trying to discourage the boy. Can't you see his size? He'll hurt you, boy. (laughs) If you read any of my recent books, you know that I believe with all my heart that this moment in history in which we live, it's the high noon, and the faithful remnant are standing on the one side, and the forces of evil on the other side. And I am absolutely convinced that when I see terrorists are converted and becoming evangelists, and I see Christians in America and in Europe and in the West are seeking entertainment rather than the pure Word of God, I am convinced that the great apostasy is upon us, that God is gathering His remnant from all over the globe, literally from all over the globe. He's gathering His people. He's beginning to separate the sheep from the goats. And therefore, I want to have a word with those armies of the living God, the faithful believers. I want to call upon you, give up vacillating between God and the world. Give up vacillating between entertainment and worship. Give up vacillating between being hot and cold and ending up being lukewarm. Give up And it is time to be zealous for God's righteousness. It is time to be zealous for God's name. It is time to learn how to appropriate the power of God. It is time to appropriate the name of our God. It is time to start appropriating the promises of God. This is the time in which we live. It's time to stop wanting to be accepted by the enemies of Christ. There are so many people who want to be accepted so badly. They compromise everything they knew to be true, even the very gospel itself. Beloved, listen to me. Appeasement has never converted anyone to Christ. It is time to stop wanting to be loved by everybody. Let me have a word with those who feel defeated today, those who are despondent, those who are discouraged, the discouraged army of the living God. It is time to rise up and be the army of the living God. But there's something here I don't want you to miss. When David slayed Goliath, he used Goliath's sword to do the job. Listen to me. (laughs) Within every problem you're facing, within every giant Goliath that is challenging you, there is a weapon for you to use to defeat that problem. Amen belongs here. You need to ask God to show you how to find it, and God will. He will. I say that with confidence because I've been there a few times. (laughs) Every time I see People falling for the lies and the deceptions, and they said, "Oh, we just want to win them to Christ. He don't become like them to win them to Christ. That's God's work. Let God do His job. I, by all means, love them, but don't conform to them." I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about these poor guys, the brothers of David, you know, shivering in their boots well, actually the sandals. <laughs> terrified of Goliath. And they're probably saying to each other, so oh, would be a great day for the church if he gets converted and becomes a Christian. Cop out. Cop out. Don't let that be an excuse for you doing nothing. David understood the secret of victory, and it is first and foremost, is the surpassing majesty of God. And secondly, David understood. From there, it follows a sober measurement of man, a sober measurement of man. Secularism, which is this life, everything focused on this life, as you know, I don't have to tell you, is dominating. Here's the thing that makes me awake at night and weep. It has invaded the church everything in preaching today is about this life. Your best life is now. Give me a break. That's what heaven is going to be like. That's why we look forward to heaven, because that's the best life that's yet to come. Amen. Amen. Verses 4 and 5, when I look at your heaven and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have established… What is man that you are mindful of him? Here's what David is saying after defeating Goliath. He's saying, God, when I think of the billions of galaxies, when I see the vastness of your creation, and when I see that the light that comes from these stars has taken billions of years to travel to get to us, when I see all of that, I am absolutely flabbergasted—well, it's a use of translation, but that's what it means—I am flabbergasted at the fact that the God of that universe, the God who made it all, the God who orders it all, the God who maintains it all, the God who sustains it all, cares not only for every single human being, but for every single hair of his children. David is really saying more than that. He's saying the very God who created the vast universe has given human beings a higher priority than all of the galaxies. David is saying, Lord, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling for me that you are more interested in every single one of your creation than the planet's that you flung across the orbits. Lord, it's mind-boggling that you are interested more in souls than in stars. Lord, it's mind-boggling that you are more interested in me than the universe. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Beloved, because of that interest... God the Son left the glory of heaven and came more than 2,000 years ago, became one of us in order to save everyone who would come and place their whole trust, their whole confidence in Him, and then live in obedience to Him. And I hear people say, oh, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me anymore. He doesn't care about my problem." Come on now. No, 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 no. It's just you don't like the way he cares about you. (laughs) He cared enough. So this morning, when you brushed your hair, he said, number 10,571, come on out. And it came in the hairbrush. How foolish of us to try to define ourselves and refuse the Creator's definition of who we are. I know throughout history, those of you probably learned all this at school, but you know that people try to define man different ways. Darwin tried to define man as only a highly developed animal. Freud, Freud, I always mispronounce his name, (laughs) he thought that man is an underdeveloped child. Karl Marx defined man as a mere economic factor. Pascal said that man is a reed, a thinking reed, but a reed nonetheless. Mark Twain apologized for man. He said God made him the last day of the week when he was tired. (laughs) But before all of them, there was Plato who once defined man as a featherless bird, until one of his rivals showed up in his doorstep with a plucked chicken, announcing, behold, Plato's man. And then he changed the definition. He said, a being in search of meaning. But God said through David in Psalm 8 verse 5, man is crowned by God with glory and honor. The Bible said that God created men and women in his own image, that God created men and women to reflect his glory, that God created men and women as rational beings. That is why God created men and women to be very different from the rest of creation, that God created men and women as separate and apart from the rest of creation. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval times explained Psalm 8 this way, He said, man is a midway between angels and animals. Angels above man, animals below man. Angels have spirits but no bodies. Animals have bodies but no spirit, and yet man has a body and spirit. Now, I don't think Aquinas was thinking biblically, but be that as it may, the Bible teaches that men and women were given a special privilege to be able to look up beyond the created being, beyond the angels that God created, that when man is able to look up to the Creator God, he will imitate God. But when he looks down at the animals, he's going to exhibit beast-like behavior. We're seeing it right now. The reason the merchants of the theory of evolution are selling very hard these days is because they want men and women to cohabitate like animals. If they are wanting us to behave like monkeys. The reason they want us to look down rather than look up is because they want us to be beast-like, not God-like. In fact, the book of Daniels, chapter 4, verse 30, you see King of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, when he turned his back on God, he became a beast. When the God of the Bible is rejected and replaced, as we're seeing before our own eyes right now, animal-like people will rule these lands. The reason all of the secular humanism, from Hollywood to academia to the media, they want to eliminate God, the God of the Bible I'm talking about, from our collective conscience— is because they want to live like animals with no moral boundaries. In fact, when that happens, people will behave like wild animal kingdom. Indeed, they are doing things and tolerating things that even animals do not tolerate. And that is why God sent His one and only Son, to save us from our willful ignorance, from our rebellion, and to fulfill Psalm 8. For it is Jesus, is the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. Beloved, the time is coming, says Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, when God will put everything in subjection under Christ. The day is coming. When those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the harassing, regardless of the pain, regardless of the suffering, we're going to be reigning and ruling with Him in heaven. Some might say, well, you know, Michael, it doesn't look like that now. Of course it doesn't. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) But don't panic. It's going to change. This is going to change. It's not going to be like this forever. You know, there's a, a story that always a reminder to me, a reminder for every believer. It's not going to be like this forever. And it's about the Queen Elizabeth of England. When she was a teenager, as soon as she turned 18, she was seeing so many of her friends signing up and going into the army to help with efforts against the war, Second World War. And so, she went to her father, King George VI, and she asked for permission. Please allow me to enlist so I can go and fight for my country. And he was absolutely reluctant. He said, you cannot do this. You're the heir to the throne. But she kept asking. She kept asking, and finally he allowed her, he gave her permission to enroll in what they call the Auxiliary Territorial Services, and she joined as a private. She had a superior officer who absolutely took pleasure in bossing her around, in bullying her. It was, Private Windsor, do this. Private Windsor, do that. And Elizabeth always responded with, Yes, sergeant. Yes, sergeant. She was made lower than an uncommissioned officer for the sake of her people. But then on February 6, 1952, her father died, and she instantly became Queen Elizabeth. She was no longer private Windsor. She was no longer badgered by a small-minded, non-commissioned officer. She became Her Royal Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. She inherited the position for which she was born. Never again would she be called Private Windsor. Beloved, listen to me. In a far, 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 far far greater way. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who fought the devil on the cross and crushed His head as the Scripture said, now He is reigning and ruling on the rim of the universe. But the day is coming when all of that's going to change, when He comes to take His believers, His army of the living God, to reign and rule with Him. We're no longer going to be subject to harassment. We no longer be subject to challenges. We no longer be subject to temptation. We're going to sit on the throne with Jesus, to reign and rule with Jesus. The time is coming. The question is, whether you going to reign and rule with Him? Will you cease to be a private and become the royal prince and princesses that you Born to be, that you're born again to be. Without submitting to the authority to the King of Kings, here and now, without living in obedience and walking in the fear of the Lord, you will not do that. But you can be assured of victory here and now and reigning and ruling with Him for all of eternity on the throne with Jesus. And you can do that today. You can do that today. If you've never made that commitment, say, God, forgive my sins. I want to be your child. And God said, that's what my son died for. Welcome home. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your heads with me, please, as we pray? Lord, you are the searcher of every heart. You know exactly where each of us stand, where each of us think, and where each of us live. And so I'm praying the power of the Holy Spirit, that he may come and move among us. For those believers who have surrendered their power, who have given up their authority, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will send us an awakening in the heart of every servant who's listening, who's hearing. Father God, in the name of Jesus, deliver us from vacillation, Deliver us from faulting between two opinions. Deliver us from putting one foot in the world and one foot with God. Deliver us from worshiping Jesus on Sunday and worshiping the devil the rest of the week. Deliver us in the name of Jesus. And for those who have never made that commitment, Lord, I pray that your voice will bang on their heads and their minds until they make that decision. They may lose sleep until they make that decision. For, Father, we know that it is your desire no one to perish. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.